Dribble Quibble. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dribble Quibble. I'm Eric Gonzalez. With me, I have Michael Stir. Mike, how are you feeling? I'm feeling really good, man. I'm always excited to talk about some basketball. So, off-season time, I'm excited that we're getting that early start in December. But you know that in the off-season, it's always going to be about the draft. Everyone's excited if you had a really rough year. This gives you hope for the future. And if you're a team that – yeah. Or if you're a team that, you know, or a team that maybe just didn't have quite enough to get over the hump, you might have hopefully added the piece you needed. So um, let's get into the draft. So Eric, I wanted to ask you, what do you think are some of the biggest surprises from this year's draft? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I thought there were a few of them. Obviously with the draft, there was not a lot of talent head to toe. I think looking at, it's not going to be the 2003 draft. Uh, it's overall pretty weak. But with that, there's definitely some good talent throughout. However, I think the big surprise that I had at first was with Chicago taking Patrick Williams at number four. Not because Patrick Williams is a bad player, just looking at Chicago's roster, they have Laurie Markkinen, Otto Porter, Wendell Carter. They have so many forwards already that I really would have expected them to take a guard, potentially somebody to back up Levine. Uh, and I just didn't see them do that. In fact, I thought they probably should have gone with the other FSU guy, Devin Vassell. I think he's a stronger player at the position that they more so need. And they could have potentially traded back for two. I think Boston wanted to trade into the top 10. They could have gotten two of Boston's pick, taken Vassell later on. So that was my first surprise. I'd say my second surprise, though, it was a slight surprise, and I think in hindsight, not that surprising uh, with the trade that they made later on, but Weissman at number two, I think when you look at Golden State's small ball lineup and their death ball lineup, as they would call it, never really had a strong center. I mean, you had Bogut, you had Zaza who were in there, but it was more so for purely defensive stops, and Weissman, I think, eventually can have the offense th- flowing through him. Uh, with the Ubre trade, it's not as much of a surprise because now they replace Clay. But going into the draft, I thought they might take Lamelo or similarly trade back. Um, Wiseman doesn't fit that Warriors small ball, and he really is not a three-point shooter. I looked at his stats from high school: four for twenty-seven as a high school senior from three, made one three uh, three-point attempt in college missed that one shot so it'll be interesting to see if they try to make them stretch five or if they just change their entire offensive scheme yeah so um going off of what you said i agree that this was from the top to the bottom a draft that didn't have any surefire picks that you could say are going to be guaranteed to have success even at the very top anthony edwards the number one pick is a player that has a ton of question marks about his commitment to the game of basketball itself But um, going off what you were mentioning on Patrick Williams at the number four pick, I can definitely understand the surprise there. I think a lot of people were. Um, A lot of people projected Patrick Williams to be a lottery pick, but I think everyone would agree that four was a little bit high. Myself being a Florida State guy, um, I don't want to be too biased here, but I think the thinking with this was, I think the Bulls going through a new transition, getting all these new people in their front office and in their coaching staff are probably not committed to any one player they have in their organization. They don't right now have a foundational piece yet to build around. So even though drafting a player like Patrick Williams adds a lot of overlap to what they already have, I think right now they were thinking there's nothing guaranteed here. 
we want to draft a player that potentially has the highest ceiling and that if we can hit on this player, potentially could be that foundational piece we're looking for because we're not that confident in any of the guys we have right now to be that guy. And I think that if you get that guy, you'll trade any of the other pieces that you have to make it work. And I think that right now they're just an organization looking for a foundational piece. And Patrick Williams at six foot eight, 225 pounds, an already NBA-ready body. He's shown the ability to hit the mid-range shot and the three-point shot. All those, the statistics on his shooting percentages aren't the best. The form looks great. And in limited small sample sizes, you can see from the free throw line shooting over 80% that he has a natural stroke that you can potentially develop. He is probably further along as a shooter right now than Kawhi Leonard was at this stage in his career. So I can understand that. And um, I'd say the other thing was for the, the Warriors pick, I understand they're probably not drafting a guy that's going to fit the same playing style that they've, you know, basically made the entire world accustomed to seeing. They're probably going to have to modify that at some point. But when you look at what happened with Clay Thompson and you lose him for the rest of the year, you have to realize one of the foundational pieces for the offense that they run is now not going to be available. You're not going to be able to replace Clay Thompson with almost anyone really for, for that position. So they realize they're probably just going to have to adapt and play differently. I think for them, they were in a similar spot where they were thinking, Hey, we're going to draft the player that we think potentially has the best ceiling and we're going to try to make it work with him. A player like LaMelo Ball, I personally would have to say that I think he's very overrated. I don't know that he's going to have as much success as a lot of people thought in the NBA. And I think that the Warriors passed on him because they probably thought he had a high potential to be a bust prospect. So with his very, very, um, I would say, putrid outside shooting, a man that shoots 25% from three-point range as a point guard, in today's NBA, that's just not going to cut it. No matter how good of a distributor he is, if he doesn't have the ability to make someone guard him from the outside, they're going to go under every single time and it just jams up your offense. So I don't really understand why anyone would project him to be um, a player that has star potential in this, in this league. But yeah. um, With LaMelo, I find it fascinating that Michael Jordan now has to deal with a ball. This is honestly one of the bigger storylines. Are you kidding me? You can give us... But this is not the only thing that's happened like that in the league. You have Michael Jordan with his off-the-court drama with LeVar Ball. LeVar Ball saying he could beat Jordan one-on-one. -on -one. All this stuff about how Jordan isn't anything. And now it seems that all his sons have stepped out on him and have kind of distanced themselves from LeVar and been like, no, don't even associate me with that guy, please. Like, he took, he took LaMelo, but I'm guessing that that came with the assumption that his father was going to stay out of the picture as well. I mean, you also have... Um, the other funny situation, you get Seth Curry going to the Philadelphia 76ers to now play for his father-in-law. So that's that's a fun little storyline, too. It's going to make for an interesting dynamic in the locker room. Yeah, definitely. And a couple interesting things, too, with LeVar. He was drafted by the Carolina Panthers. So now his wow. son goes to Carolina as well. Uh, and he, in 2017, said, I'm going to wear a hat that says, I told you so, when Melo gets drafted. And... He wore a hat on draft night that said, I told you so. So wow. always a troll, always a planner. <laughs> but if there's anybody who speaks things into existence and has manifested uh, talks, uh, it, he's, he's yep. definitely one of them. Um, he's, put, uh, he's put three of his kids into pro leagues, and he really has called some things. You got to give it to him. Yeah. And with 
some of the other reactions that I had from the draft. Denver, I don't know what goes on in their scouting room, but I think for them, they just throw flyers at things and see what works. With RJ Hampton, potential to be a great pick. He obviously had his draft stock slide with going to New Zealand, unlike LaMelo. Probably if he had a dad that was outspoken, might have gone higher. However, RJ Hampton, pretty good player in high school. So for pick 24 for the Nuggets, I think they could get another Michael Porter Jr. It's possible. The only thing that made me a little bit uncomfortable about that pick is the logjam they have with forward and forward centers in their locker room. They have a ton of players who play that position. They already had some issues with Michael Porter Jr. last year regarding his unhappiness with coming off the bench. He has expressed that he desires to be a starter and that he doesn't believe that he is a bench player. He definitely expects to start. And I think that if they value him and they want to keep him long term, they're probably going to have to accommodate that. They also have people like Bull Bull in the lineup. They have Plumlee. They have Jokic. We have Paul Millsap. We have we have a ton of players that play that same exact position. I just don't understand where RJ Hampton is going to see the minutes without seeing one of those other guys moved. So although I know there's like 15 Plumleys in the NBA, but didn't Plumlee from Denver go? Didn't he leave? Did he get traded? I think he might have gotten traded, but regardless, Jeremy Grant also uh, left to the Pistons, which I thought was a little bit questionable on their part. So I think Porter may get his starting minutes I was after the showing he had. But you know, I I definitely agree with you that they have log jams in certain areas. But top to bottom, Denver's a pretty good team, so they'll definitely. They've also earned the benefit of the doubt at this point. They've hit on all of their picks over the last couple of years. Yeah, Mike Malone is also a solid coach. And I think going back earlier to your Chicago point, now them having Billy Donovan in the uh, as their coach, obviously did some great things with the Thunder last year with a very hodgepodge, mixed bag uh, roster overall. So I think he'll be able to get the best out of those guys, including uh, the FSU draft pick. I agree. So I wanted to ask you out of these, just before we uh, move on to our next topic on free agent signings, one more thing about the draft. Real quick, what would you say, not in terms of necessarily who do you think is the best player, but I want to know who you think was the best draft pick for that team culturally. What was the best fit and which was also the worst fit? What two picks do you think were the best and worst fit based on the team that drafted that player? Yeah, I still think Fit-wise, the uh, mellow ball thing is going to be weird. Um, I think I think you hit that spot on. Uh, I don't really know what they're going to do with him. You have Devontae Graham, which, who's been having a stellar, stellar year last year, and now you're going to throw him in the mix. Malik Monk was their draft pick from a few years back, and you're going to try to make him give up his number to an unproven rookie who went to New Zealand. To be honest with you, I, I don't know how it is that the the person in charge of drafting for the Hornets still has a job. I, I looking Mitch at the Kupchak. Hornets. Mitch Kupchak is just he's awful. Over the last couple of seasons, based on what I have seen that I could accomplish in two K at a Hall of Fame, <laughs> I am certain that I could have drafted better picks than the Hornets have. I don't know if it's that 
they just have the complete inability to develop talent and that players that could have otherwise become good players go there to rot away, or that they just statistically have the worst luck of all time and they can't hit on anything because they have been in the lottery for seemingly since the NBA began and they haven't hit on anything. It's, it's incredible. But um, I have to agree with you. Those are pretty awful. Um, for me personally, I have to say I love the pick of Precious Achiua by the Miami Heat. Um, I have to praise the organization for that decision, not only for selecting him, but also for not making the decision that everyone thought they were going to make, including many of my own peers. Everyone thought that it was going to be a lock that if Tyrese Maxey somehow made it all the way down to that pick that, I mean, you got to take that guy. He went to Kentucky. He's getting positive references from your best players on your team. Bam Adebayo, Tyler Hero saying, this is the guy. He's heat culture. You know, everything is saying they got to take this guy. And they shock everyone by taking Precious Achua. Although in retrospect, it makes all the sense in the world. And I think that they deserve praise for making such a high upside pick. I think that a lot of people passed on Precious because they didn't really know what to do with him. He's a guy that he projects as a four or a five, but didn't really start playing that position until this year in Memphis. Before that, he had aspirations of being a wing player. This is a guy who is quoted as saying, I want to be the next Kawhi Leonard. He is somebody that wants to show that he can score from the outside and shoot. And as a result, he never really developed any sort of an inside game. So if you have a guy who projects as a four or a five, and he doesn't have any moves inside, and he's not particularly great at shooting from outside either, you look at a guy like that and you think, this guy's a lot of work. For a lot of teams, that's not worth the, the effort or the resources. It's too much bust potential. But for a team like the Heat, I think they get guys like him, and he's in a similar mold as a Bam Adebayo, and they give them structure, and they know how to take a multifaceted player like a Precious Achua and get the most out of him. And I think that they addressed some of their biggest weaknesses from this past finals. We saw that they really had trouble keeping the other team off the boards, defending inside. It was tough. Every time that Bam sat, they got destroyed inside. They looked like they were preschoolers playing against professionals. It was, it was really hard to watch. They needed somebody who was a stopgap inside that also had the ability to switch. And I think they did a, amazing job of addressing that need by drafting Precious. Yeah, I, I agree with you on all those points. And I think another team that is going to fill some of their defensive holes uh, is the Atlanta Hawks taking Onyeka Kongu uh, out of USC. I love that pick. That was, I, I, that was the best pick in the top 10, actually. I thought that people were scared because he fractured his toe, which is not anything like what Embiid had several years ago. They hear big man foot some of these injury. Guys are yeah, they heard big man <laughs> foot injury, and they're like, oh, we can't take this guy. And I think with the Hawks. I think that the Blazers with uh, Greg Oden, nobody's willing to take a shot at a big guy that has yeah. any kind of history of, what, of whatever kind. But you got to love what the Hawks have been doing the last couple of years. They have been making – very smart picks. They've been complementing those picks with talent. I think that they're going to be a team that's on the rise next season, potentially a playoff squad. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about them later. But I think with Onyeka, he set the USC freshman record with 76 blocks, which was the fourth most all-time by a Pac-12 freshman. So 
Atlanta, they're definitely going to be flashy. They're definitely going to be high octane, high scoring, but you need to have that defensive stopgap. And really, if they have him and Clint Capella in their defensive lineup, that's two twin towers that they're they're really not going to be able to get past them. So I think very smart move by them. Uh, and I think he'll only blossom in that system. So I think with the draft, we saw a lot of trades. We saw some surprising trades, not so surprising. So I think starting, what do you think of the Chris Paul trade? To be honest with you, I love the Chris Paul trade for them. I don't know that the Thunder with all those picks or picks seeming are just, I don't know what they're building, but I love the Chris Paul move for the Suns because it seems like the Suns found out when the bubble restarted that they have something in Devin Booker. He's a guy that he's a talent. He is a great scorer. He's very young. He can only get better. It's hard to know what his ceiling is because as much as his numbers look great on paper, we don't really talk about him all that much because he's always losing. He's never played any meaningful ball in his career. And it seems like one of the things that the Suns lack more than anything is direction and leadership because they've never had that on their team. They've had coaches come in and out. They've had a front office that is known to be dysfunctional. They have an owner that is regarded as being a meddler that doesn't like the general managers and coaches do the job. He always thinks he knows best. It's an organization that in reality had a lot of instability. But on paper, you look at that roster and they have talent. They look like in reality what they needed was some veteran leadership. And I think they did a great job by adding Chris Paul, who's not only going to help stabilize that roster. We saw what he did for the Thunder last season, helping um, Shea Gilgis-Alexander develop into a much more mature player. And I think he's going to do something similar for Devin Booker. One of the biggest questions about Devin Booker has been his playmaking ability. Can he be a lead guard? Is he someone that you can count on to be a primary playmaker for you in the playoffs? And I think that having a guy like Chris Paul on there, I think that they're signing him not only because they think that they're going to get over the hump and make the playoffs, but also because they realize that these are crucial developmental years for some of their young guys. And having a guy like a Chris Paul on their team can only help the development of some of their young guys. Yeah, I completely agree. I thought it was a home run hit for, for them. I think with the Suns, they've been for the last three or four years figuring out what their point guard situation is going to be. You heard John Wall might get traded to there. You heard Chris Paul might get traded there when he was with the Rockets. When he went to the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, maybe he's going to go there. <clears throat> so you've heard all of these names thrown around. Goran Dragic might get traded back over there. And finally, they get Chris Paul after one of his best performing years, uh, looking just like his banana boat buddy and challenging. Bob I think Brown. it was incredible how he was able to turn that situation where everyone was kind of like, wow, Chris Paul sent to rot away. Jesus, man, Oklahoma City. This guy's going to probably win 20 games. Poor guy. And, and they thought that Oklahoma City would have to pay a draft pick to get rid of him. When in That's reality, true. they, they ended up getting more. more draft capital back. And he That's arguably, well, he arguably also made Gallinari look better, who just got paid. He made Steven Adams look better, who got traded to a better situation. So he made everybody around him look better. Somebody you didn't mention, DeAndre Ayton, I think is going to take a massive jump up in year two. 
Oh, getting a distributor. Pick and pop. Yeah, pick and pop with DeAndre Ayton. It's going to unlock his game. Dario Saric, similarly, and then now you have Jay Crowder, who, if he can replicate his level of play from the Heat. Or he can give you 75% of that. Yeah. I mean, even 75% of that, it's not only what he's going to bring to them statistically. Again, that team on paper has talent. What they need is an identity and leadership. And getting somebody like a Jay Crowder has a similar effect as Chris Paul. He's a leader. He's battle-tested. He knows what it's like to play meaningful games. He's someone that you can lean on as a leader to teach you how to properly prepare and show you what it is that it takes to win at the highest level. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And I think they only have that one more contract year with him at 44 mil, which even if he plays, like you said, at 75% of that, I think it's still a steal for them because they're going to have Aiton at about 10 or 11 million who is going to be in his final year. So he can get paid right after that. You have Devin Booker, who's still in the middle of his extension. So he's now going to be underpaid, even though his extension two years ago looked massive at $158 million. You have rookie-scale extensions going to about $193 million. So I think a great trade uh, all around. So another point guard who got traded, also something that's been writing on the wall for a long time, uh, Drew Holiday to the Bucks. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, Drew Holiday to the Bucks. I honestly, when I first heard about that deal, I actually really liked it because I thought for the Bucks, it's about as much as they can do. They're in a situation where they're pretty strapped. They don't necessarily have much draft capital they can offer. They don't have much space where they can sign talent either. They didn't necessarily have a, a, a litany of young players that you'd consider assets. They didn't really have a whole lot that they can do to improve the roster, but are faced with having to do just that or losing their franchise player. So I think that given the limitations that they had, they did great in adding Drew Holiday and Bogdan Bogdanovich. But then I heard that Bogdan Bogdanovich decided he wasn't going to go, and that really changed the complexion of that trade. Because now you go from a home run signing where you're adding an upgrade at point guard who's going to be both an upgrade defensively and an upgrade offensively, which we saw in the playoffs when teams can build a wall in front of Giannis and prevent him from getting into the paint. You can only stop that from happening if you have shooters that are good enough that are going to force the defense to stick with them. If the defense sells out every time and goes and clogs the paint, Giannis isn't going to be able to score or be as effective because let's face it, at this point in his career, he doesn't hit enough from outside to win a ball game if they're going to take away the paint. So they needed to upgrade their shooting. They needed to upgrade their scoring. And they did a great job addressing it at first. But now it's looking like it was just not quite enough. And it's looking like, to me, this is basically a Band-Aid over a wound that ultimately isn't going to heal. And I think that um, Giannis is going to basically look at this and say, hey, I appreciate your effort. You tried but it's just not enough. A lot of teams got better this offseason. A lot of teams improved. And if you look at the Bucks, you can say they're a little better, but can you say that they're significantly better? Can you say that they're even good enough to get out of the East with this addition? I don't think so. So I think at this point, it's um, a slight upgrade for their odds on their championship hopes. Yeah, I think teams are right now doing something interesting because the two trades that come to mind of Drew Holiday 
Anthony Davis a year ago, Paul George a year ago. Both of them, massive amount of picks. But they were parlaying those picks with another expectation. With, with Anthony Davis, it was the expectation that we're going to satisfy LeBron and we're going to win a title. With Paul George, it was we're going to land Kawhi with trading five picks away. With Drew Holiday, it was we're going to trade three picks, but we're also going to get Bogdan and our team's going to be overall better. I don't, I don't think they got better. They lost their best three-point shooter on the team, also in the league, in George Hill. And they get rid of Eric Bledsoe, who defensively, about the same rating, maybe a little bit less on the offensive side. So you lose a little bit on offense, you get about the same on defense, and then you lose your depth with another point guard. So that, to me, puts you in a worse spot. Because if Drew Holiday goes down, then... You don't really have anybody else backing him up. Who are you going to put in Dante DiVincenzo? To That's not the main thing. There? I'm that team, and I'm thinking the same thing that I thought when I looked at them last year at the playoffs. I don't know why analysts were saying that the Bucks had depth. I was looking at them all year saying, what do you mean this team has depth? They have one injury, and they don't have a, a replacement-level backup to fill that guy. They don't have anyone – to fill one of their main role players' absence that can give you even replacement-level production. And they don't necessarily have off their bench anyone that you could say is a high-level six-man leader. They don't necessarily have that. They have a bench that is a collection of solid players that if one of them goes down, you're depleted. And it's still the same thing this year. So I think that it's only a matter of time uh, before Giannis sees the writing on the wall that as much as he would love to stay there and do right by them, it's just not going to be the place where he's going to be able to assemble the pieces that he needs to win. And I think that he knows that deep down. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I think Giannis is gone after the season. I don't think he's going to sign that super max. And especially because the cap is probably going to well, be. Sign it, he's not at the end of the season. He doesn't sign that he's going to get traded. You know that they're going to want to get something back rather than let him walk for nothing. They need to. Um, Definitely. So I think we've talked a bit about Uber. So I, I want to get more into the hypotheticals. Uh, I want to talk about some trades that I think will or should happen going into next season. Starting with Bradley Beal. I think he needs to be shipped from Washington. I think Ted Leonis is stubborn and will not get rid of Bradley Beal and keeps wanting to hold on. But if you look at Washington, they're not going to be able to get anything for John Wall. If anything, they're going to do a one-for-one -one swap with Russell Westbrook and same exact loaded contract. So they don't have any cap space. They're over the cap by $12 million this year. They're barely under the cap next year by $2 million. So they can't sign anyone. They're just going to be able to use mid-level or biannual exceptions. John Wall hasn't stepped on the court in two years. So I think they need to get Beal out of there. They need to figure out if they can get some great draft capital for Beal, turn that around and flip some of that draft capital out so they can get rid of Wall. And then they can start to actually rebuild because until then, that team's going to be in the bottom of the East for a long time to come. I agree with you. I think that it's not, I mean, the, the Wizards are stubborn for not dealing him because they should see the writing on the wall that they're not going to have enough to compete by keeping Beal. They're capped out, as you said. They don't have an ability to really change or improve their roster drastically. And they don't even make the playoffs. This is a team that we're not talking about a team that is making it 
to the second round and losing and they're getting bumped out of the playoffs and you're hoping that maybe one of your young guys makes a leap and takes you over the top or you get someone to join mid-season that takes you over the hunt. No, we're talking about a team that you're not even close to competing. You're not even making the playoffs at all. But the thing is, Bradley Beal is doing this to himself as well because the reason they're not trading him is because Bradley Beal is out here publicly telling everybody, I want to spend my career in Washington. This is where I want to be. This is my home. This is where I feel comfortable. I'm committed to making it work in Washington. If you are an irrational owner like Liam just and you don't want to see the writing on the wall that it's not going to work and your star player is telling you, hey, don't trade me. It's fine. You're probably just going to hold on to that and not trade them. It's the stupid move because they're probably costing themselves what could have been better picks if they would have just gotten rid of him already. But um, I think at this point, they just refuse to part with him because they're worried. It may be a while before they can draft someone that realistically is going to give you 30 points per game production, six rebounds, five assists. I mean, these are pretty tough numbers to reproduce. And I think that they're just hoping they can hold on to him long enough for some miracle to happen to break right. And they're not going to get that miracle, to be honest with you. I think what's going to end up happening is they're going to have another mediocre season. And Bradley Beal is finally going to say, hey, like we gave it our best shot. John Wall came back. We were saying that we were waiting for him to come back to see what could happen. He came back. We saw what happened. It wasn't enough. So I think probably before the season then Bradley Beal has a new home. Yeah, but that's just, it boils down to a management issue because Kemba Walker said he wanted to stay in Charlotte the whole time and ended up going to the Celtics because they were like, hey, we're moving on from you. Um, to be fair, they didn't What? To be fair, the Hornets didn't exactly get better after the trade. They didn't, but they decided to move on from him. And uh, similarly, Russell Westbrook, pretty much said that he wanted to be an OKC lifer, sign that $200 million extension. Yeah, and this has the look of a team that has no testicular fortitude. They have always been an organization that if you look back at the history of what the Wizards are, they are an organization that doesn't like change. They don't like to have to try to change things up. They like to settle for their comfort zone, even if that comfort zone is firmly in mediocrity. Look at, for example, when they had Gilbert Arenas, Anton Jameson, and their main trio. They were eliminated from the playoffs every single year in the second round. And in reality, all that time, they never really added pieces or changed their core much. They waited until Gilbert Arenas basically got perched from the league for the gun incident in the locker room before they decided that, hey, maybe we're not going to be able to win at all with this. I just think that maybe they're an organization that has a different barometer of what success is than a lot of other organizations. I think that there are organizations that for them, success means competing for championships and winning it all. And I think for the Wizards, success for them is just relevance, perhaps. That's what it would seem based on uh, the way they performed historically, honestly. I think they're relevant for the wrong things. They remind me of the Bengals in the NFL. Who knows the NBA podcast, but the Bengals similarly just live... In that, that. in that epitome of mediocrity. Uh, another trade that I think has not happened, but should happen, they've talked about it every single year for at least the last two or three years, CJ McCollum out, going to the Nets. Oh, that's a hot take. That's a really hot take. 
But if they you know, give the same package that they're theorizing for Harden to Portland, minus maybe a couple picks or a couple players, the Portland Trailblazers should absolutely jump on that. And if the CJ McCollum and Lillard combination doesn't work, they got to move on. I honestly, I have to agree with you in the sense that they have to part with CJ McCollum as much success as they've had. And people will say, oh, this is crazy. Like, this is one of the most successful backcourts in the NBA. They're always top three in scoring backcourts in the NBA. And they always have a pretty good year. They're always, to their credit, pretty it's much. Kyle Lowry and DeRozan again. Right. It's, it's basically the exact same thing, except that I think that the difference is Damian Lillard is a better player than either one of them. And every now and then he can take it to a level that can make up for the lack of talent around him a lot of the time and the lack of fit. Because in reality, as good as CJ McCollum is as a player, he doesn't really complement Damian Lillard's skill set all that much. He's undersized. He plays the two guard, but is undersized. He's smaller than Damian Lillard is. He's six foot three. He is always a, de- a defensive liability. He's a good scorer, but he scores in a similar way as Damian Lillard does. And it seems a lot of times when you watch them play, rather than seeing a cohesive game plan, they kind of take turns and it's like, okay, I tried my turn and now you try your turn. Kind of like what you saw when LeBron James and Dwayne Wade first started playing together and didn't have chemistry yet and didn't really know how to play off each other off ball. It was kind of like, okay, like I know you're great. You know, I'm great. We have a mutual respect. We know that either one of us can turn it on. I'll pass it to you. You pass it to me, but we're just watching each other really. And I'm just waiting for my turn. And then when you're done, we hand it back over. That's basically all it is. I think that they would be well-suited to try to swap CJ McCollum to a player or a destination where they can get a player that would be a better positional fit for Damian Lillard that would complement his talents because it is a shame that Damian Lillard with, with all his otherworldly talents can't get to the finals because he's always held back by his supporting cast. It's going to be that story for Damian Lillard if he doesn't get a better supporting cast and it starts with CJ McCollum getting traded. I agree. Yeah, if they don't do that, Damian Lillard won't sign another contract there. I see him going home to the Lakers, joining up with Anthony Davis when LeBron t- retires. See, that's the and thing, then... though. Damian Lillard has said vehemently that he will never leave Portland. He says he wants to be the best trailblazer that ever played. He says he wants to be the he, Kobe He might be that with not ever winning a championship and oh, still he, leaving. He is the best blazer right now. Yeah. He already is that right now. But he says that he grew up a Kobe fan and he wanted to be the Kobe Bryant of his team. And he feels like for him, that is just as meaningful as winning a championship and that he feels like the respect and the way that the organization treats him. He said that they're first class and that although they haven't necessarily put around the best cast for him, he said that they put in the effort and he said that he would feel comfortable spending the rest of his career there. So I guess Damian Lillard is comfortable with not winning if they don't get rid of CJ McCollum. That's the way it looks. Well, hopefully uh, they do win and they turn it around because I think both of them are good guys that are well-respected around the league. I, so. yeah, I have respect for the way they play the game, 100%. Yeah. So from an overall standpoint, when you look at the moves teams made over the course of the draft, trading, free agency, who are some of your winners? So 
I think that one of the most underrated moves, nobody's talking about this, and it, and it blows my mind, but the Houston Rockets, this offseason for them would have seemed to be a nightmare offseason. I mean, you have literally a dumpster fire is what it would seem. You have the general manager who drafted your franchise player, or not drafted, but the general manager who acquired your franchise player in a trade. He jumps shit. He originally tells you that it's because he wants to pursue other interests outside of basketball. And then next thing you know, he's, he's doing the same job for the Sixers. And it's like, okay, that, that raises a little bit of questions. What's going on in the Rockets house that this guy is first of all lying about why he's stepping down, but like quickly just jumping ship and oh, here I am doing the same job for someone else. And then you have the coach do something similar. You, then you have Mike D'Antoni say, Oh, I'm, I'm stepping down. I'm not going to resign. Uh, you know, I think I just need some time away from the game. Fast forward two weeks. Mike D'Antoni isn't even a head coach. He agreed to be demoted somewhere else rather than return to Houston. He agreed to be an assistant coach for the Nets rather than return to Houston. I, I honestly don't know what is going on there. And I'm surprised not, no one's really speculating about it because that is strange. But it seemed James Harden, Russell Westbrook smelled the flames and started putting it out there that they wanted out. So this would seem like a horrible, horrible situation. But they sign Christian Wood as a free agent that I think really quiets this storm down for them a lot. Because if you're James Harden, I think that he was comfortable in Houston before. I think that what it is is that he just wants to know what the hell is going on. He's seeing his coach leave, his general manager leave. He looks at his roster. He knows he doesn't have enough. What's going on? Like, am I going to compete? They signed Christian Wood, who a lot of people haven't heard about. He's a guy who basically came out of nowhere for the Pistons after Drummond was traded. And after not really putting up any numbers, after he got promoted, he averaged 24 points a game and 9.8 rebounds per game in his last 10 games of the season. And he did it while shooting 77% from the free throw line and 37.5% from three-point range. This is a guy who is six foot ten and is only 25 years old. This is probably, I would say, the best free agent signing that Houston has made for James Harden in terms of fit for him. Every, every addition that they've made for James Harden to this point has been putting him with another point guard. They put him with Chris Paul. They put him with Russell Westbrook. They give him a lineup that has absolutely no size. And they tell him, hey, we're going to do something crazy. We're going to play with our biggest guy being six foot seven. And we're going to hope that when the playoffs come, somehow we get enough rebounds and stops to survive. And it doesn't work, clearly. I think that you get a guy like Christian Wood, who is a legitimate big man, six foot ten, who still has room to grow and put on some more size to his frame and showed you flashes of what he can do in the second half, I think that this is going to be the best big man and the best teammate fit-wise that James Harden has ever had. And it potentially, if it works out well for them, could be the reason why he ends up staying. So I think that the Houston Rockets quietly did a great job with that addition. Um, that's probably the single most impactful addition. But I would say that the Hawks, number two, made the most moves in covering all of their weaknesses. This is a team that already was an offensive dynamo. You had plenty of scoring. That was never the concern with them. They just couldn't get any stops. They were, they were Swiss cheese. They were full of holes. Like 
this this team was a speed bump on the way to the basket. This was, I mean, Trey Young is never going to be a, an elite defender. We have to come to terms with that. And he didn't really have anyone else on that team, given their inexperience and youth, that really played great defense either. So, unfortunately, it seemed that most of their games came down to shootouts, and most of the time they couldn't get enough stops to stay in. But you go and you add some veteran leadership from a guy who has won multiple championships and is a great defender in Rajon Rondo. You go ahead. And now and has a three-point shot suddenly. <laughs> we'll have to see if that's sustainable. I still don't really believe that that's going to be something that we can count on from him on a regular basis. I think that was playoff Rondo, to be honest. I think that even he was – I saw him looking at his hand after one of them. Even he was looking at himself like, what is this? Like, why couldn't I ever do this before? And I think that he's right. I think that he can't do it. I think that he's probably going to regress and be the sub-50% free throw shooting, sub-30% three-point shooting Rajan Rondo that we have always known him to be. But that's not what they need from him. They have plenty of shooting. What they need is some leadership and some defense. And I think that getting a guy like Rajan Rondo, the additions they made with their draft pick, I think that they did – great complimentary additions to their roster. And I think that they'll probably be a playoff team next season overall. I expect that their young guys are going to grow and adding some leadership and some defense is going to do a lot for them. And I might even go on to say that the Hawks may have the single biggest turnaround in their record of any team. I'm not going to go ahead and say that they're going to make, you know, the top four seeds or be a, competitive team in the playoffs or anything like that, but they didn't necessarily have a really good record last year. And it wouldn't be crazy to think that they would drastically outperform their record from last season, this coming season. Absolutely. You think they will. I think with Danilo Gallinari going there, that also gives us more offensive uh, firepower, especially if you can stay healthy. You also have Bogdan going there potentially that, instead. I mean, what are they going to do with all this shit? man they they have they're loaded like this roster is i think potentially the best three-point shooting team in the nba at this point you have a couple of teams that have maybe multiple two three guys that you can say are going to be like elite snipers but this team is just loaded with shooters from top to bottom like even their forwards their big guys can shoot threes like everyone can shoot yeah i think rondo's gonna have a great time finding open shooters on that team. He's going to see open shooters left and right. Well, I think the quiet thing that nobody talks about, Trey Young last year, 9.3 assists per game. Next year, oh, he's a great contributor. I think he's double-digit assists, especially with having the tutelage. I agree with that. Rondo. Uh, yep, so with that. the Hawks, similar to you, I think they're one of the winners of free agency. I still think they're going to trade John Collins and have some draft capital going into next year. Ooh, uh, really but he fits so well with that roster. He does, but I just see him wanting a bigger role. And I think with all the pieces that they've added, there's going to be a few log games and he's going to have to come off the bench to have you got to work some of these other people. Pick, like, huh? Yeah. He's probably looking yeah. at that draft pick that they made, like, huh? Looking at the writing on the wall. I don't know about my job security right now. Yeah. But so uh, I, I think he'll be someone who's traded. Uh, the clear winner for me, Thunder, for the next 10 years. Are, <laughs> So yeah, stockpiled. Before the Adams and Ube trades, they had almost, I think, 17 first-round picks. So let's call it 20, round up cleanly. 
stockpiled 20 first round picks on top of that have multiple swap options with other teams. Their most recent ones, like I said, were Steven Adams and Oubre. You saw some hate from people talking about the stockpiling of picks. Since 2007, 13 years ago, their tier one picks, KD, Harden, Westbrook. Their tier two picks, Abaka, Steven Adams, Reggie Jackson. So if out of their 17 first round picks for the last 13 years, they made six, about 33% of those picks were tier one or tier two players. And now they have 20 in more, less than half of the time that they're going to be, be a problem so in the dangerous, future. so dangerous, they will be. and they're going they're to going be to able to trade multiple picks in order to the get into the top five. They, yeah, they it, have the flexibility to do whatever they want with their roster. Once they get the foundational piece they think they need, they have the immediate ability to transform and shape that roster around him and immediately make it a contender. It's 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 great, honestly, what they did. Here's the other problem that they have with other teams. Also, I read that they traded with 12 different teams during the trade deadline or the, this whole offseason. 12 different teams in like two weeks. So Sam Presti, best friends with everyone. This is a uh, busy guy. This is a busy, guy. busy guy. But if you look at their roster, they have Shai Gregorius Alexander, potentially a franchise cornerstone. So they're already set there. They have George Hill. They traded above that starter. Yeah, they have George Hill. They just traded for him. They're either going to cut him as a buyout candidate or with the cap space they have, they'll keep him around to the trade deadline, trade him to a contender, let me get another first-round pick. They have Horford, bloated contract. Maybe they keep him for a year, do the same thing they did with Chris Paul, get the best out of him, trade him to another team. They have great, great reputation for picking up other teams as unwanted, bloated contracts and somehow flipping them for additional assets. It's incredible how the Thunder makes it Think about the gambit that they got for Paul George. They turned Victor Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis in a pick into five picks, swapping rights, and a cornerstone PG by trading. He has to be the most underrated general manager in the entire NBA. He's never really in the conversation. Well, he's in the conversation, but he's never really recognized as general manager of the year the way that he should be. Sam Presti is a top-flight professional this man is at the very top of his game and i think that he's probably right up there with anyone that you can name for best general manager in the nba year in and year out if this guy's leading your team you have to feel good about the direction of your organization 100 percent. and i think on top of that you have the flexibility with your cap to absorb deals which means for the next couple years they know they're not going to be good so hey uh let's see Washington, we'll take John Wall from you. We want five first-round picks. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be able to take on so much dead money and just sit there and collect draft picks. You talk about a process to trust. That's one that I definitely think that people need to trust. Another team, another general manager that I think hit a home run this offseason and fleeced another team. Talked about earlier, David Griffin and the New Orleans Pelicans. They have a ton of draft capital going into the they, next couple of years as well. And trading That's through, two off-seasons in a row David Griffin's been able to pull this off. Yeah, two off-seasons in a row to get several picks and swapping rights. Also, their team, young nucleus, young nucleus, young core that is on the rise. They still have Josh Hart, Zion Williamson, Lonzo Ball. Lonzo got, has gotten better. Brandon Ingram, you can't 
can't forget about Brandon Ingram. Yeah, he's about Making to sign a max deal. He's about to sign a max deal. And now I just got Steven Adams and Eric Bledsoe to lock up the defensive front as well. So I think they're going to be solid as well for the years to come. Um, and yeah, we already talked about the Hawks. So I think going, flipping the script a little bit and thinking about the losers, my surprise pick here, the Bucks. I think they spent way too much for Drew Holiday, in my opinion. We talked about it earlier, the trade-off of taking Drew and Bledsoe, uh, as well as George Hill. I think Drew's an impact player, but he's not that impactful. Like, Paul George went to the Clippers, and I said, Clippers could win. AD went to the Lakers. Lakers are probably going to win. You don't say, Drew Holiday went to this team. They're probably going to win. It's just not the same. And they paid a ransom to get Drew Holiday. Also, I think they felt like they had. Yeah, I agree. But you think about their management and their leadership team, like how did they make that gap with the Bogdan trade? And like what kind of a domino effect does that have around their team? Because if Giannis is sitting there, he's like, we have shooters. We don't have uh, – guys, what happened? I thought thought we were getting – Not not only, but it makes makes your entire organization look like you're amateur. It makes if you're someone that's considering where you're gonna play for the next five years of your life potentially, you want to know that the person driving the boat knows where the hell they're going, and this is something that you don't even see rookie general managers make this mistake. How do you forget to do it? This is like the equivalent of forgetting to cross your T's and dot your eyes, which at this point you can't make that mistake when you're in that position. You're supposed to be a top-level guy who's a representation of your organization when you have the title of general manager. So not only do you lose out on the player, you also make your organization look like a place that is dysfunctional when you do something like this. And you make it look like there are just leaks everywhere. Anyone can leak something at any time, and there's no secrecy. Like, LeBron James had Magic Johnson go to his house to talk him into signing with the Lakers. And nobody knew that Magic Johnson had even met with LeBron James. So you want an A-class, stellar organization. You want somebody who's going to keep your secrets. You want somebody who's going to not spread a bunch of rumors that aren't true. And for a supermax player like Giannis, who's coming into that final contract year and potentially going to leave, it's not showing him that you have, like you said, the most stable franchise in place. Another team. I agree. The New York Knicks. What it <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's that any time that someone says Knicks to me in a sentence about basketball, I just immediately laugh. Like, I guess that is the joke. That is the punchline. You don't even have to tell me what it was about them. I already laughed because I know that you're not going to tell me anything but something funny, I'm sure. Like, like, who wants to play here? They got Thibodeau, who is a defensive-minded coach that runs people into the ground, but people who play hard like working for him. But they take Obi Topin, who is way more of an offensive than defensive threat, and played in a conference that's meh. So who knows Not if he's going to be good. I think that the biggest thing here is the massive oversight of the Knicks to hire Thibodeau as a coach for a developing team. This is a guy that he himself has said that he feels he does better with a veteran squad. Tom Thibodeau is a guy that doesn't have much patience. 
if you look at this guy walking around, this man looks like he's miserable all the time. He, even when he wins, he's upset. He never looks happy. This is a guy that wants a veteran squad that he can count on to be professional. This is not a guy that's going to be patting your back and being like, oh, let me motivate you. Let me, oh, you had a bad game. Oh, let me pat your back and stroke your ego so you don't miss a bunch of open threes because you think you suck now. Like, this is a guy that he expects you to already be mentally there. And he expects you to come in and do your job and execute the game plan. He's not a guy who's a developer of talent. And he's shown that over the course of his career. What young player has developed with him besides Jimmy Butler? And Jimmy Butler is, as everyone knows, a very unique situation. Jimmy Butler flourished under him because Jimmy Butler likes that kind of environment. But very few players like that kind of environment. And, and they already had yeah, MVP Rose and Joaquim Noah, who were both dominant right. at their position. Exactly. Exactly. I think that it was a very poor fit to choose Thibodeau as a guy that you know is going to have to coach a team that is predominantly young developing players. It's just, no matter who you draft, I don't think it's going to be a good fit because he's going to expect them to be at a certain place mentally, and they're not going to be there yet. That's just how it is. Well, and the rich thing about it is they talk about every year, oh, New York is such a big market team. New York is going to get that free agent guy. And their most notable free agent acquisitions, Alec Burks, Austin Rivers. I think what it comes down to is, at this point, players realize it's not just about, oh, this is a big market. Yeah, you need to have a big market, of course, but if you're in a big market and you're losing, you're still not going to get paid. And it seems like the Knicks, everyone knows their secret is out. The Knicks did the most damage to themselves by having James Dolan as an owner. This is an owner that everybody knows his name and everybody knows who he is because he wants you to. He is always meddling and getting involved because in his mind, he really does believe that he knows best. He thinks that he knows more than the people that he hires. He likes to hire people that are going to tell him, yes, you're right. What you said is true. Like if you hire a guy to execute a certain offense and then you tell him, ah, but actually I think that based on the roster we have, you should run this offense. He's probably not going to run an offense that he's not familiar with as good as he would run his own offense. And this is the kind of guy that he is. And he does this from the top down with every single aspect of his organization. And I think that players know that. And players don't want to go to an organization to spend the longevity of their career having to deal with a guy like that who's going to make decisions that are illogical, frankly, that are a lot of times based on ego and generally don't lead to winning or even a stable, positive environment. This is a team that I would imagine to step into their locker room feels like there's a dark cloud hanging over you. Like it, it must, the stench of losing must be just pervasive all it over. It reminds me of Jeffrey Loria and the Marlins. It is exactly Just... a perfect analogy of that. I think that until the Knicks are sold to a different owner, they will never know prosperity because even if they were to draft someone that could be good, they did. They, they drafted someone like Christoph Porzingis. I know he's gotten hurt, but you know, you got to give him their credit. He did turn out to be someone with all-star potential and all-star ability, but he left because as soon as he realized what the Knicks were, he was like, I'm out of here. And we're talking about a guy who, I mean, people made fun of this guy for being soft-spoken when he came into the league. This is a guy who is not an assertive, oh, I'll demand me to be traded guy. He's not like that. This is a guy that was a nice, quiet kid that even got roasted for that. And after about 
a season or two decided in his head, you know what, this is a bad place. If I stay here, I'm going to ruin my career. He politely, as politely as a guy like that can ask, comes out and says he wants to be traded. With two years left on his contract, mind you, this isn't even a guy that's like in his contract year. Like this guy just decided early. He's like, I want to leave. <laughs> and he left. And I think that that's going to happen every time to the Knicks until either <laughs> James Dolan becomes a new human being or he sells the team. Yeah, we'll see if he gives Leon Rose any control, but I highly doubt it. Um, I, so in terms of free agency, I think most people have signed at this point. So I think I'd like to get your take on who's your maybe one or two best fits on their new team and who do you think are some of the worst new fits? So I guess I'll start out with my worst fit because it really just jumps out at me. Um, I don't understand at all what the Celtics are thinking. It, it blows my mind. And also, it's not just the Celtics. It's, it's a lot of analysts in sports in general are praising this signing, and I, and I don't understand it. The Celtics give Tristan Thompson two years, $19 million. I'm not saying that it was a terrible contract and, wow, you should definitely crucify them for having given him two years, 19 million. I mean, at this stage, two years, 19 million isn't exactly that large of a commitment, especially compared to some of the other steals we've seen this off season. But people are praising the signing as if it's going to make a difference for them or as if it's going to make them better. We are talking about a guy who is washed up. This is a guy who people are saying has an improved outside shot because he made nine threes all year. He made nine threes, people. That's not an outside threat. That's not a spacer. This guy's not going to start. This guy, at best, is going to come off the bench to back up Tice. He's not someone that can defend perimeter players whatsoever, which goes against Brad Stevens' switching philosophy. Brad Stevens is a guy who loves switch-heavy lineups. He drafted Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and kept a guy like Marcus Smart around because of their switchability. Tristan Thompson gives you zero switchability. He presents a logjam now on their defensive switches. I don't know where he's going to see playing time because he doesn't have the ability to play in that type of defensive scheme. He doesn't have the ability to score inside either. We're talking about a guy who primarily gets all of his points from within five feet of the basket. We're talking about a guy who probably the majority of his field goals are either going to be bunnies, putbacks, or dunks. And somehow he's still shooting below 53%. How the hell are you shooting below 53% on attempts like those? For a, a position player that is a center, that's unacceptable for a guy who's also turning it over nearly two times a game. I don't understand why people are praising the signing, saying this is going to help them. Kendrick Perkins is out here saying this makes them a contender and addresses their needs. What needs does this address? Based on what I saw... Yeah, on you're not going to beat the zone with a guy who can't make a three. Exactly. Based on what I saw in the playoffs, there is not a single thing that Tristan Thompson could have contributed in the series that they lost to the Heat to have helped them win. There's nothing. Jeff Teague, way more impactful of a signing for them than Tristan Thompson. I agree. And no, and no one's even talking about that one. I, I really don't know why anyone gives Tristan Thompson time of day. I honestly think that as a position player, he brings almost nothing whatsoever to the table in terms of offense, defense, all he can realistically provide you 
is the occasional offensive rebound. And I think that for a guy who's all he's going to give you is an occasional offensive rebound to say that he's worth two years, 19 million at age 34. And to say that he's going to make a difference for your team. It doesn't make any sense. It's just crazy to me. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. I think interestingly for me, my worst fit that I see, I have two of them. My first one's Gordon Hayward going to Charlotte. Uh, I take a look at Charlotte's roster and I think Hayward will start, but realistically, Charlotte's not a contender. They're not trying to contend right now. They just got rid of Nicholas Batum's very, very fat contract only to bring on Gordon Hayward, who has been injured with pretty severe injuries in the past couple seasons. And they bring him back for four times the player option that he got out of. And I just, I don't understand how you can logically do that when you just had the number three pick in the draft, which means that you weren't that good. And you're going to have to get rid of Terry Rozier now and probably pay someone to take on Terry's contract because Terry hasn't done anything in the past couple of years. And you're hindering the progress of Malik Monk and any other forward that's on the roster that you've had confidence in years ago. So yep. I just don't see the fit. I don't understand why they paid him that much. It seems to me the Tristan and Gordon Hayward thing, they both reported by these teams years ago, and now these teams are trying to get the people that they courted way back in the day. With Hayward yep. in 2014, Michael Jordan wanted him. Now he gets his man six years later and after a couple ankle injuries. Tristan Thompson, <laughs> a couple of years ago, the Celtics wanted him. Now they get him. A couple years is, later, with more Kardashian drama. Like, yeah, I, I just what, what is especially strange to me is you expect this type of bizarre, illogical decision making from a Hornets front office. I don't know why Michael Jordan, as a, as great of a player as he was, he can't seem to get his ship right. But the Hornets front office has always done things that don't make any sense. But the Celtics are regarded as a very pragmatic logical, astute front office. We're talking about an organization that is praised a lot of times for their foresight, their picks, and their trades. And then they're probably most modern-day relevant player to get draft picks. They got rid of two of their big three to get draft picks. So they are one of those teams that, conversely to what we were talking about earlier, when they don't let go, this team was willing to let go. But to your point, questionable decisions this offseason. The other aspect, too, is on Gordon Hayward's part, going, going to the other most questionable choice, what was Gordon Hayward thinking? I feel like this reminds me of a situation where you have a girl who got into a relationship with somebody and he got upset or she got upset because she realized the relationship's terms weren't what she thought they were when she first got in. She's like, you don't pay any attention to me. You told me that we were going to be going out on dates and doing all this stuff. And now you basically just have me here sitting on the bench. You don't pay me any mind. And you're just letting me sit here. You told me that I was important. You told me that I was the one. And now here I am just sitting on the bench look, looking at everyone else play. I know I'm not important in your mind. And fine, I'm leaving. And then she follows it up with, instead of making a smart decision of, hmm, what is a healthy choice for what I should do with my career next? No, just take the next highest bidder. Hornets come in with this offer and is like, I'll go to the Hornets then. Look, look how much they value me. Look, you see this money they gave me? You see that? 
I'll go to the Hornets. They want me. But he's not thinking the Hornets are a team that are not going to be able to compete. Don't you, don't you want to win? You as Gordon Hayward, you don't have, after this contract, your prime anymore. This is going to be the final contract where you're going to be able to play at the level that you are right now. And you're going to blow those years on a team that you should reasonably expect to not accomplish much over the next couple of years. Why would he choose that? It honestly makes me lose a little bit of respect for him as a competitor because it seems that he just jumped ship for whoever was the highest bidder, not really caring about what he went on to accomplish or fit or any kind of aspect besides just the contract. So I used to think that he was a, a competitive guy and someone that I might want on my team. But after seeing this, I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that me personally, I never had a Gordon Hayward on my teams. Yeah, I, I think the only other, obviously, team that you heard about was Indiana. And with Indiana, I'm sure they offered him a couple years and probably not the level of money uh, that the Hornets did. So uh, question, questionable decision on the Hornets part, definitely questionable from a competitor's standpoint. Somebody else that we talked about that I thought just overall questionable on both parties, um, Jeremy Grant going to the Pistons, uh, signed a three-year deal for, I think, upwards of $40 million, if I'm not mistaken. And the Nuggets offered him the same deal with the same terms, and he turned them down. Which Yeah, that was surprising. Yeah, if you look at the Nuggets, maybe it's a similar situation where Jeremy Grant's like, hey, I'm just sitting on the bench. You're not really paying attention to me. But the Nuggets just were the second seed in the Western Conference. Yeah. They, in the most – like one of the most challenging conferences in any sports league were the second seed. role for them too. It's not like he didn't play. He had had a large prominent role for them. And we talked about the Nuggets having a lot of forwards. If you look at the Pistons, they are all forwards on that team. I don't understand why he did that. I think it's one of the worst decisions that a free agent could have made for positional fit and for also future prospects. What do you hope to accomplish there? Every move the Pistons make just gets me thinking, what, what is this adding up to? What is the point of this? What is the direction of this? It never makes any sense with them. They're similar in decision-making to the Knicks, it seems, without the same stigma, but equally bad at decision-making, it seems. None of their signings seem to make any sense, not on paper, not on the court. It just doesn't add up, ever. Yeah, and I think also – you also have to think about these guys' career and how they establish themselves in cities. With Grant being in Denver, Denver is a very still up-and-coming city. It is growing rapidly. There's a lot of tech and a lot of innovation going on there. You saw Durant do this with the Warriors, and now in Brooklyn, he's really creating, I think it's Seven Ventures or Katie Ventures, something in both of those hubs. If Grant has a smart financial advisor, business manager, money manager, there's no reason to leave Denver for Detroit when you're making the same amount of money. You're not going to have the same level of business success in Detroit unless you start getting into like used car sales. I it's think what just not, that's not intelligent. Yeah. But like um, you said, if it was role, I don't know what role they promised him because it's not going to be a good one. But I agree. Unless they get rid of Blake to start the season. Maybe this is a sign of something to come for them. Yeah. Uh, my best fit, Ibaka going to the Clippers. Oh, I think that's going to be such a good fit. I think 
with him and Kawhi being paired together again after a year in Toronto. Kawhi is definitely going to love having his bud to pop a three-pointer from the corner or also to sit behind him and not have to get back on defense. Paul George, I think, took a step back defensively last year, so now you have that stopgap to help Paul George. I think him going to the Clippers, it softens the blow of Montrezl Harrell going across the way to Los Angeles. It gives them, I think, exactly what they needed from a front court presence on that team to potentially beat the Denver Nuggets or the other up-and-coming Western Conference teams like the Mavericks. I agree with that 100%. The other aspect of it, too, is aside from what Ibaka does in the stat sheet for that team, it's also what he does just for your team's chemistry. I think that anyone who watched the Clippers play last year, you can chalk it up to just not having enough healthy games to give them the exposure to play together. But even when they were all on the court together, it just seemed like these guys didn't like playing with each other. It seemed like they all were just showing up to work and they were basically punching in their card. They clock in, they do their work, they clock out. It didn't seem like there was any real passion, joy, chemistry, or cohesiveness from a personality standpoint on that team. And I think that when you're in the regular season, that's fine and you can overcome that because in the end, talent does overcome a lot. But when you get to the postseason, you can see that having those little things like the nuances of knowing the timing of when a teammate is going to be in a certain location, knowing what's someone's sweet spot, knowing how they like to receive the ball, knowing what are the most advantageous positions to get that player the ball. Those little chemistry details a lot of times are what make the difference in being able to execute late in the game when you have a close one-possession game and the defense is locked in. A lot of times it comes down to everyone being on the same page and being in tune and having good chemistry. And I think that everyone saw last year, the Clippers sorely lacked that. And I think that Kawhi Leonard is going to benefit greatly from having his friend Serge Ibaka, whom he won a championship with the Raptors on that team, someone that he's familiar with, someone that he knows, someone that he's won with, someone that he knows their tendencies. He's understands his game. And I think it's going to make, the locker room feel more familiar for him. And overall, Ibaka's always been regarded as a very uplifting presence and a very positive presence in the locker room, as opposed to a guy like Montrez Harrell, who doesn't have the most glowing reviews from everybody in terms of what you may perceive as his character. I think that it definitely improves their team chemistry and mitigates any of the losses from Trez's departure. Yeah, I agree. So I think we have definitely covered a good amount of everything that just happened. I know there are still storylines to come and things to build on. So I think this was a great first episode. Uh, I think moving forward, it'll be interesting to see where all these pieces fall, what other trades happen if James Harden is moved or Westbrook is moved or John Wall is moved. But this is a good one, man. Good first podcast. Yeah. Definitely happy about it. Um, you know, we're always undefeated in the court of public basketball opinion. And um, to anyone who thinks that they have a better opinion, you can feel free to reach out and you can debate. And we will put our undefeated record on the line because I know we will win. So I hope you guys enjoyed and we hope you tune in again next time.
Yeah, subscribe. This will be on all the different uh, streaming platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Michael Stern. All right, until next time. Bye, everyone.